Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a ton of great articles for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. Our first link comes from Australia. And I tried to do the accent but stopped in the middle because I can't do an Australian accent. (laughs) So I apologize, Australia. But great news. There is a new orchid that has been discovered in Australia. And the researchers are keeping its location top secret because it's a little bit of a delicate kind of guy. Yeah. Hasn't that always been the thing with orchids? Like they admit where they are and then people just descend upon them? (laughs) Well, it's not only orchids. I, I think we had talked about these rock flowers that have also been like people are going to national parks to take these because they're such cool looking succulents. Uh. But this has been going on for about four years. So four years ago, there was a 65 year old retiree who's a scientific illustrator named Marie Elliott. And she was taking a trip to the Barrington's Top National Park, which is north of Newcastle in Australia. And she was bored. She was looking for native fungi to draw for her work, but she was spending hours and finding nothing. She got a big stick, was playing around in the leaf litter, and then found, as she said, this lovely pink thing surfaced. She didn't know what it was. It wasn't a mushroom, wasn't a truffle. It was just a very small, pinky, creamy thing, almost like a half-opened flower bud. But an ecologist that was in her party got all excited and immediately identified it as a form of underground orchid, which is an extremely rare plant that never naturally pokes its head up above the leaf litter. It spends its entire life cycle buried in leaf litter. And so when the ecologist saw it and got all hot and bothered, they started to do a little bit of research. And what they identified was an entirely new species previously unknown to science. So it was described as a once in 50 year botanical discovery. But they'll never share the location. Mm -hmm. It's close to where people would go walking. So under the circumstances, they feel they've got a responsibility to protect it. And it has formally been named the Rhizanthella speciosa. Mark Clements from the National Herbarium in Canberra recently published his description of the plant in an international journal on orchidology and describes it as the most unique orchid on earth. And this was new to me. Orchids are the largest family of plants on earth. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. They spent 10 days trying to find more, had no success, so they had to get some plant detectives to help. The consultant's OWAD environment brought in English Springer Spaniel tracker dogs named Mm. Missy and Taz, and these very good puppies within 10 minutes found their first underground orchid. Wow. So by now they've geotagged the locations of about 39 flowering heads at Barrington Tops, which is where it was originally discovered. It's one of only three species of underground orchid on Australia's east coast, while two species were found in western Australia. But Dr. Clements said... Underground orchids could have once covered a large area of Australia. We could have lost more of them because of clearing for agriculture. You know, they hang out under leaf litter, didn't even know they were there. It does sound like there's a little bit of an opportunity there because, of course, like the whole orchid craze was like, oh, I have to have this unique, interesting looking flower in my home to show how cultured and rich I am. But if it's an underground orchid, like you could just put a little cube of dirt 
in your house and be like, oh, there's an underground orchid under there, but you can't look at it. It's too delicate. That, that's true. You just have to know that it's there and feel good about it. Sure. If you want to be honest about it, I'm just saying sell people dirt. Like, <laughs> there's no need to put a plant in there. Just sell people a cube of dirt and say, whatever you do, don't dig it up because you'll kill it. So just trust us. It's there. Mm-hmm. You know what? I like your entrepreneurial spirit. This is like the 2020 spin on the pet rock, and I am here for it. Exactly. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So I've got plants on the mind as well. This article is called When Plants Go to War, and it comes to us from Nautilus, that is nautil.us. So a plant's life may appear an oasis of tranquility, but there are many pests that put plants under constant stress, and they actually have to fight just to stay alive. Oh, yeah. And I actually had no idea how much plants would do to defend themselves, and this article goes through five different types of defenses Hmm. that they have. Nice. But all this comes at a cost, such as energy and other resources that the plant could otherwise be using for growth and repair, so plants have to be selective about how and when they deploy their Mm. chemical arsenal. Mm -hmm. So the first example is warning flares. So instead of pumping out chemical defenses 24-7, plants will actually hold off production until an attack is already underway. As soon as an insect bites a leaf, the leaf sounds the alarm by emitting what are called volatiles, which are basically chemical flares that tell other parts of the plant, as well as its neighbors, to start manning the barricades. Hmm. So this early warning system works via a cascade of little molecular events. Uh, First, it'll trigger the release of jasminate hormones, which in turn break down proteins known as JAZ or JAZ. These proteins actually silence the genes that direct the manufacture of various toxic and protective chemicals, and by eliminating jazz, the jasminate hormones free these genes to express themselves. So that's essentially when the plant is like, okay, I'm no Kicks longer in. being limited from yeah, creating these chemicals, so I'll start. They also will make use of underground networks to warn each other of impending danger. So many species have a symbiotic relationship with soil-borne fungus, which will penetrate the outer layers of a plant's roots to feed off its carbon stores and help it take up vital nutrients such as nitrogen and phosphorus in return. But what the fungus will do is it sends out these long thread-like branches called hyphae, which will colonize nearby plants and form these vast underground webs. So what scientists did is they did an experiment on bean plants, and they placed aphids on a plant encased in a polythene bag so it couldn't broadcast warnings by air, Mm -hmm. and other plants actually began churning out defensive compounds as soon as they put the aphids on the first plants. Hmm. They also had a control for unconnected neighbors who did not. So the fungus is essentially kind of a biological internet carrying really important information from plant to plant. Yeah. So the second thing they'll do is they'll also create calls for backup. Mm. Among a plant's armaments are volatiles that will beckon predators of its insect attackers, actually. So, for example, when caterpillars graze European maize, these plants emit the volatile beta-caryophylline, which attracts parasitic wasps. And these wasps actually lay their eggs inside the caterpillars, which then will slowly feed on them, and eventually, when the eggs hatch, kill them. Hmm. The European maize also releases this same compound below ground in response to rootworm attacks, and that signal will drift through pores in the soil, calling to predatory roundworms that there's actually something there to come and eat. However, there are downsides to this. So, for instance, a call for help can invite unwelcome guests, 
The maize varieties cultivated in the United States have lost the ability to produce this beta caryophylline, leaving them more vulnerable to insect attacks. Mm. But when researchers restored the gene responsible for producing this chemical in laboratory plants, the roots became infested with a pathogenic fungus, Whoa. which had actually apparently evolved to recognize the beta caryophylline as an invitation, which presents the maize with a tough choice. Mm. Keep its wasp and worm allies and succumb to the fungus, mm. or take its chances against herbivores. Rude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'll also plant booby traps. So plants in the Brassicaceae family, including broccoli, cabbage, and mustard, they will store seemingly harmless compounds known as glucosinolates in cellular compartments next to stores of enzymes, and the two reserves are separated only by a thin cell wall. When an unsuspecting herbivore chews through the wall, the morosinase enzymes will mix with the glucosinolates, catalyzing chemical reactions that will then produce a toxic cloud, Ooh. essentially. So it's kind of like, you know, when you have an epoxy glue thing where you have right. to mix the two compounds together to activate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The plants are pretty smart about this, and they won't actually ramp it up in response to something that they can't actually do anything about. So... When chewing insects, such as caterpillars, activate the traps, you'll get that toxic cloud, and it'll induce the plant to ramp up the production required for it. But when you've got sucking insects, such as aphids, they will actually avoid setting off the traps by feeding through a needle-like tube, and that causes the cell wall to not break down, so mm. the plant doesn't waste its time trying to attack aphids with mm -hmm. uh, something that's just not going to get triggered. Mm -hmm. So it's like glow sticks, where it's got like that inner tube made of glass where like you have to crack it pretty hard to get the second chemical out and to make it glow. <laughs> like exactly. You, you could exactly. stick a needle in and like suck out just one of the chemicals and be okay. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so this next one is really crazy to me. They describe it as spy games. So some plants <laughs> have learned the communication codes of their enemies and use them to spread false information. Ooh. So aphids, for example, will release the pheromone beta-farnesine when a predator attacks. And the warning tells other aphids in the area that, you know, they've been in a fight and it's time to run away. And plants will actually often emit beta-farnesine as well during an aphid attack in order to attempt to scare off more aphids who might show up. So uh -huh. they're trying to ape their aggressors and basically send out this distress call. Is that similar to like how when you kill a cockroach, apparently they can scream and you just can't hear it? Or like how they, at least in downtown Austin, some of the buildings will have recordings of like horrific bird murder to scare away <laughs> birds. I don't know if you've ever heard it. And these may not. be like totally unsubstantiated. I don't know if I have any evidence to back this <laughs> up. But like, you know, it's sort of meant to be a deterrent, right? And so they just record or have a way to broadcast these danger, death, stay away signals to whatever they consider a pest at that location. Yeah, I have heard that yeah. if you kill an ant, it releases a dead ant pheromone that will sort of scurry Ooh. other ants away. So like if you find an ant and kill it, you should actually like leave it on the windowsill or whatever is like a warning so to the morbid. others. <laughs> <laughs> well, all these examples are horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so I think y'all have got the idea. <laughs> right. We're ready. Nature is very metal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these pheromones aren't always perfect, though. So a lot of the time plants will release the pheromone in a steady stream as part of a mixture of defensive volatiles. But aphids have actually learned to ignore it in certain circumstances. However, the wild potato has actually found a way to modify the signal successfully. 
It will store the pheromone in delicate bulbs on the ends of tiny leaf hairs. So when an aphid lands on the leaf, the legs will stick to the leaf's tacky surface. Mm. And as the aphid thrashes around trying to free itself, it breaks the bulbs, releasing those pheromones in a way that mimics the aphid's pulsed alarm call. It's a never-ending arms race. You gotta stay one step ahead of the enemy. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I don't know if this is just the regular potatoes you buy and bring home, but it's kind of weird to think that when you cut into a potato, you're releasing all these anti-aphid pheromones at the same right. time. <laughs> so the last thing that these plants can do is they can actually do their own emergency first aid. So there are a range of compounds known as green leaf volatiles, which act as antiseptics and will protect damaged tissue against bacterial or fungal infection. And these volatiles are actually part of what make up the fragrance of freshly cut grass and send another warning to neighboring plants, reminding them that danger is at hand. (laughs) So also a little dark, but when you're mowing the lawn and you get that nice, (laughs) freshly cut grass smell, that's Uh grass screaming to other grass. So. Oh, de grass scream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, an injured plant also produces traumatic acid known as the wound hormone, which will stimulate cell division to close up a laceration in much the same way that blood will clot in an animal's mm. wound. And these responses happen within minutes of an attack. Plants will begin patching themselves up while still fighting off invaders. So they have to constantly decide how to divide their resources between defense and regeneration. Yeah, but ultimately it sounds like they have a lot of tools. Like, I'm jealous. I want wound and <laughs> Antiseptic to squirt out of my body. That sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. I I know what you mean. And I can't mimic the predatory call of any type of animal. That's right. That's right. But but let's be honest. Wait, have you really tried? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying we all got a lot of time on our hands. This might be something to consider. That's right. Bootstrap yourself, man. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Well, oddly enough or not, I, too, have brought us an article about plants. Yay! Uh, (laughs) You guys recall a couple weeks ago we talked about the California wildfires, right? And how Mm -hmm. just the forests are just this bulked up tinderbox that's going to burn and it's just a disaster and we're all very sad about it. But turns out this article from Shoma Abyankar from the BBC rejects that false choice between wildfires or controlled burns and actually shows that there is another way. (gasps) So the article focuses on the Uttarakhand state of India, which is in the western arm of the Himalayas, where they found another solution. They have these huge pine forests there, and it's actually a little bit ironically bitter that they have these pine forests at all because the chur pines were introduced into their ecosystem by British colonizers Mm -hmm. for commercial timber and resin production. They were not native to the area, but now they've completely taken over. And, you know, that was a long while ago. The people who live there now are just like, yeah, those are our trees. We're fine with it. Mm -hmm. But like American pines, they put a lot of dried pine needles on the ground, which is a pretty significant aspect of the fire risk. You've got this kindling Mm -hmm. all along the forest floor that's just ready to go up at any minute. And sure enough, they have regular forest fires there that put lives in danger and destroy local flora and fauna, etc. One of the other things they're especially concerned about there is they have medicinal plants traditionally grown in that region that are being prevented from growing on the forest floor Mm -hmm. because of all the pine needles. Mm -hmm. So as in California for a long time, they have thought controlled burns were the only alternative to out-of-control wildfires, and they've been doing them diligently. But Rajneesh Jain, who is a management consultant with a background in solar irrigation, he said, what if we collected the pine needles and used them as a fuel source? And it's important to note that he's not talking about burning them. He refined an older technology called gasification 
which was originally developed in 1994 by a team at the Indian Institute of Science, originally to deal with rice husk and coconut shell waste, right? They Mm -hmm. had all this extra material they needed to get rid of. So they said, well, what can we do with it? Mm -hmm. And what they came up with at the time is they put the biomass into an oxygen-deprived environment and heat it to over 1,000 degrees Celsius. And because there's no oxygen, you don't ever get fire. Instead, the biomass just starts releasing this mixture of gases, including carbon monoxide, methane, and hydrogen, which can all be captured for fuel. And then the resulting ash is this high-carbon powder that can be sort of pressed into briquettes for at-home cooking use. So they've been doing gasification for a while just sort of as a a means to an end, right? It was, we need to get rid of this manufacturing waste. Hey, if we get a little energy out of the process, okay, fine. But Rajneesh was the first to say, well, what if we did it for the sole purpose of generating energy? And he was initially met with rejection, right? The government said, no, 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 the density of pine needles is too low. You don't know what you're talking about. And the villagers he was trying to approach from the other side just thought he was insane. Right. But Mm -hmm. the idea intrigued the Volkart Foundation, which is this investing firm set up by Swiss brothers in 1953 to support poor communities. And with their funding and their help, Rajneesh solved the density problem, which basically amounted to just grinding up the pine needles so they were in Mm -hmm. smaller bits. And in 2009, he succeeded in setting up the world's first nine kilowatt hour pine needle power plant. Wow. So they gather these pine needles, they blend them a little bit, they cram them into a special hot box, and they get gas out of it. They can power a power plant. Wow. And in 2011, he founded Avani Bioenergy and started signing agreements with local electrical companies that, it should be noted, had pretty much ignored him, even though he had a working process. But (laughs) as of 2011, they were required by new laws to source a percentage of their energy from renewable sources. So Mm -hmm. they really weren't motivated to change their business plan until they had to. But then once they did, they were like, oh, this completely works and we should have been doing it the whole time. And he's like, yeah, I know. (laughs) What a genius idea, though. I mean, not only does it get rid of something that is already considered waste and can impede ecological systems, but you're incentivized to keep these trees around. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have nearly the economic impact of burning other materials that they like burning coal. There's a lot of off gassing that they don't capture. Right. This is a much more efficient process in general. So cool. There is one drawback. Due to the mountainous terrain of the Himalayas, all the pine needles really have to be collected manually. It's just too rocky. You can't have like trucks going over in these forests. So because of that, he focused on putting smaller decentralized plants in each village. So rather than like a normal power plant of 120 kilowatts, Mm -hmm. he put little 10 to 25 kilowatt hour power plants in each tiny village. And it had the added benefit of creating jobs in each village. Yeah. So the women who go out and gather the pine needles are paid two rupees per kilogram, which over the course of a seven hour workday equates to double the minimum wage for the area. So it's actually a really good job. It's just like it's great in all directions. Asha Devi, one of the needle collectors from Hasyudi village, said, I earned 8,000 rupees in the first year and bought a buffalo for milk. (gasps) Yeah. And that was just in the first year. Once they kind of got their act going, they figured out better processes. She said this year she's earned as much as 17,000 rupees in one month. She's already constructed an additional room on her house. She's like, this is fantastic. It's the best job I've ever had. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Rajneesh has 12 power plants right now in different villages. He's got another 40 in development. And 
the answer to the question everybody's been asking, he says in areas where they have installed one of these pine needle power plants, they have not had any incidences of forest fires yet. So, Yay! I mean, you know, they got to wait and kind of make sure all the data's in. But it really looks like this is making a difference from a forest fire perspective. And some of the medicinal plants are starting to come back. So it's just Yay! fantastic. Oh, good news. Yeah. That's awesome. It's nice to hear for once about a scientist who is thoughtful about their approach, especially when working with smaller villages mm-hmm. and cultures and things like that. As opposed to like what you usually hear, which is, oh, scientists tried this thing. They didn't understand the local culture mm-hmm. or the ethnography, mm-hmm. and they screwed it all up and caused all sorts of capitalistic problems within this community. Uh-huh. Uh, but it sounds like this is all upside, so that's very nice. Yeah. Well, and you got to think like, you know, California is not quite as mountainous as the Himalayas. Like you got, mm-hmm. you could probably institute something like this here. And still have automated pickup of the pine needles. Because, like, I sure. I have to be honest and admit, like, yeah, we're probably not going to get a labor force to go out into the forest Mm-mm. and pick up pine needles all day. That's It's a harder sell here where we're not relying on buffaloes for milk. But <laughs> right. I, I think you could mechanize it a little bit and get some of the same benefits and stop the forest fires. And, you know, I mean, it seems like yeah. you could really expand it if you tried. This has such great potential, too, for private application for homesteaders. You know, if you're Mm -hmm. looking for an alternative to traditional gas-run generators or things like that, that could be a nice thing to have in your prepper pocket. Oh, for sure. If a tiny village in poverty can run one of these gasification machines, I guarantee you somebody out on the frontier can have one in his barn or whatever. Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So everybody get one. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. We're going to bring it back to the human side of things because we are all one living organism on Mother Gaia. Is that your segue? That's what we're going with? That's (laughs) real. I I, I don't know why I made that so much more difficult than it needed to be. I liked Uh, it. It was good. (laughs) This next article comes from BBC Future. It's got a little bit of an alarmist headline, but it's called The Movements That Betray Who You Are. Ooh. Ooh. So this article focuses on nonverbal code switching, basically. Uh, you know mm. how we have accents or dialects that can creep into the way that we speak, but now we're starting to look at body language and facial expressions. Mm. There was some research that was done in the late 1980s where they noticed something strange about photographs in a famous study. What they had done is ask volunteers if they were able to identify emotions in the faces of Japanese and Caucasian people. But some of the Japanese faces were posed by Japanese Americans and the rest were by Japanese nationals. And what they were able to find out is they could tell who was a Japanese American or a Japanese national. Even though the faces were Japanese, Japanese, there was something in the expression that gave away something else to their identity. So they ran another Hmm. experiment. And what they found was that Americans were strangely good at spotting who was Japanese and who was Japanese American, even though they were all ethnically the same. They wore the same clothes. They were lit in the same way. When the two groups held neutral expressions, people could barely differentiate between them. Mm. But when they showed their feelings, especially sadness, something from Japan or America seemed to emerge. And this might be something you've experienced if you've ever been abroad and you could just kind of tell that maybe someone passing by was an expat. For example, when you count to three, people can do it in different ways, right? We kind of pin our little finger with our thumb and we raise our pointer finger, middle finger, ring finger. That's how we count to three in America. Mm -hmm. But in Germany, they raise their thumb for first and then the first two fingers. Mm -hmm. So you never really think about this until you see someone doing it differently, which then all of a sudden looks super strange. 
And sometimes these are very intentional. For example, Vladimir Putin is said to display his KGB weapons training in the way he walks with his gun arm hanging motionless by his side. And that's sort of his way of flexing like, hey, I've had KGB training. I might have a gun here. Super macho. Oh, so uh, they feel like he's doing that on purpose. It's not exactly. like a, I've internalized this. It's more like, no, let me show you. I mean, that's speculation. And I think that there may be something sure, yeah. to that speculation there. <laughs> um, but since this initial discovery, the researchers have detected more of these, what they're calling nonverbal accents. So these physical ways in which we can show where we come from without realizing it. For example, Americans can often spot Australians from the way they smile, wave, or walk. They've even found that facial expressions during orgasm can carry different <laughs> cultural accents. Unfortunately, they didn't go into detail on that one. I'm sure you can do your own research if you are so inclined. <laughs> But we've got more recent research that's now supporting these findings. A team at the University of Glasgow has trained a computer to recognize and then generate more than 60 different nonverbal accents on a simulated face. And these are really subtle, almost indecipherable differences, like the way a nose wrinkles or the way that a lip is raised. But when East Asians were shown these artificial East Asian expressions, they recognized them way more easily than the Western ones. They're thinking that eventually a robot should be able to simulate the tiny nuances for any culture and any occasion across the world. But this whole nonverbal accents thing really isn't surprising, nor is it terribly new. I mean, you can often recognize individual voices and faces or even walking and running styles without knowing exactly what about it makes it recognizable, right? Mm -hmm. There's a Chinese technology company called Waitrix that claims their software can identify a person from footage of them walking with accuracy up to 94%. Hmm. So if an individual's movements can be so distinctive, then it's not unreasonable to think that groups might share a few things in common, and this might be noticeable to people that are outsiders, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I've experienced that. Someone that I know very well, if I happen to see them at a great distance, I can say, oh yeah, I know that so-and-so because of their walk. But I wouldn't yeah. necessarily be able to say, I could be like, that's an American at that grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There, there was a classic study in, I think, at Princeton University where psychologists found participants were good at picking election winners just by choosing who looked more capable from a pair of photographs. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this took place some time ago, and we live in a very different world now. But in this study, even children became decent political pundits when they were shown the same pictures and they were asked to choose an imaginary captain for a video game. Obviously, there appears hmm. to be no connection between looking reliable and actually being reliable. But right. This but is... that's we don't base our choices on actual fact. We base it on what things <laughs> feel like. That's for exactly. Sure. <laughs> and as we get into a hyper media saturated world and information economy where being mediagenic is that much more important, it's likely to kind of extrapolate that you could kind of not weaponize, but maybe take advantage of some of these things to portray the thing that you want to have people have an impression of you, right? Oh, man. Imagine, like, okay, go with me here. In, like, a futuristic <laughs> society where in an effort to block that, we basically force all politicians to have the same super generic generated face. So it's like, you know, three mm -hmm. versions of like, you know, whatever, handsome JFK or something. And all three of them look exactly identical, but they're saying they're actual policy positions and you would have to vote based entirely on what they said. 
Like I, oh, that's I admire your optimism. <laughs> your unfailing optimism about see, the future and the human condition gives me hope. I don't know that it is optimism. It feels kind of dystopian to me because it's also Very like dystopian. you could put whoever you want in office at the end because no one would know. No one would have any idea who was actually up there. Yeah, kind of like how they chose Reagan, who was a seasoned, <laughs> you know, media professional to sure. basically act as a front piece, mouthpiece for a really vast. Okay, I'm getting a little tinfoil hat. <laughs> But, you know, some of the research might be new, but a lot of these mechanisms and the way right. that we understand this as humans, definitely not new. But I'll end on a high note here. Uh-huh. There was one recent study from the University of Wisconsin-Madison that suggests that the nonverbal cues that we give here might have given an upbeat accent to modern Americans. So the theory here is that residents of a place that have high immigration will often struggle to understand each other. Everybody's kind of other. They've got all these different cues and nonverbal accents. But in order to cope in ordinary life, they have to try a little harder. So as a result, the authors are speculating that a lot of smiling and pantomiming of emotions would have been required or are still required in a lot of ways. And so when they check the available data, they did find that people in countries with high ancestral diversity, including the U.S., reported smiling more often. And this is a criticism that you can hear a lot from Europeans in particular, right? (laughs) Um, It's why Americans might think that Europeans are cold or snooty, and Americans to Europeans seem ridiculously cheerful to everyone, including strangers. And it might be because we've got these histories of wanting to foster this connection in order to make everyday life a little bit smoother, but just don't demand only women do the smile. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in Texas, you never know who's got a gun. That's right. <laughs> you, got, smile. you have to smile because you don't know. <laughs> exactly <Yeah>. right. Yep. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So, sorry. I'm trying to come up with an awful segue. Ooh, no, no, no. This, I, I didn't mean to raise the bar on this ridiculous segue. That was yeah, yeah. a weird impulse that I had. But now the suspense is killing me. <laughs> <laughs> well... Speaking of cultures and <laughs> nonverbals, let's talk about the verbals of birds. Yay! So this article, <laughs> this article comes to us from nationalgeographic.com. It is titled, These Parrots Developed New Dialects in Captivity. Oh my gosh! Can their wild kin understand them? Ooh. Yeah. Can they? So, um, captive- <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> uh, captive breeding saved the gabby birds from extinction, but it also changed their way of communicating, which raises a concern for their future. Mm-hmm. Today, there are squawks, shrieks, and whistles from parrots reverberating throughout the rainforest of Puerto Rico, but a few decades ago, these sounds almost disappeared. Deforestation had taken its toll on these Puerto Rican parrots, and before European colonization in the 1500s, their population was estimated at a million. But by 1970, as few as 13 of these Puerto Rican parrots were left in the wild and confined to one of the island's only remaining forest patches, the El Yunque. And in a last-ditch effort to pull the species back from extinction, conservationists began to breed the parrots in captivity. And it was a successful gambit, though the chatty emerald green birds are still considered critically endangered. Today, more than 600 exist, Hmm. which is quite good from 13. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, there may be a new threat to their survival, conservationists say. Captive parrots have developed an entirely new dialect, which is a phenomenon that hasn't actually been observed before in other bird populations. 
the person studying this is Tanya Martinez, who is a conservation biologist with the Puerto Rico Department of Natural and Environmental Resources. Around 2013, Martinez, who is then a master's student at the University of Puerto Rico, began to notice that the Puerto Rican parrots didn't all sound alike. And she says, if you would go into the El Yunque forest to work with the wild population, it would almost sound like a different species. She wanted to learn more about this, so she eavesdrops on all four parrot populations in existence, and there are two wild and two captive, and recorded them. And what she heard confirmed her suspicion. The vocalizations weren't the same from one population to another. Mm. So with the wild population so depleted, the scientists had to get creative. They brought closely related Hispaniolan parrots, which were relatively plentiful in their native countries of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, to Puerto Rico and put them to work as surrogate parents, raising Puerto Rican parrot chicks. Aw. I mean, that's good. Like, it feels like stealing babies and shipping them off to other families. But (laughs) I can see how it is, in a non-human context, it's okay. There's just a part of me that's like, what? No! What? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're kind of almost forcing some of these birds to be dodo birds, (laughs) you know? It's kind of... But so, with all of these different populations in existence now, Martinez actually recorded all four populations in the field and converted more than 800 hours of bird recordings to visual representations. Wow. called spectrograms, hmm. which will show you the frequency distribution of sound. They focused on the two most common calls, the caw and the chi that flock members exchange to keep in contact with each other. And the research revealed that captive birds make caw and chi calls with at least two different syllables, while the wild elyonke birds make entirely different calls, which are essentially a single syllable on repeat. Hmm. Huh. So being exposed from an early age to the Hispaniolan parrot's calls while being separated from elders of their own species is likely what set the stage for the captive-raised birds to develop new vocalizations. And the vocal changes didn't end there. They also found that each subsequent time the conservationists broke the birds off into new groups, tiny innovations would creep into their calls. Mm -hmm. So the captive Rio Abajo group began to sound distinct from its captive parent flock in El Yunque. And after the Rio Abajo captive birds were released into the Rio Abajo forest, the calls changed again. I mean, it feels like if they can change that quickly, they also should be able to adapt. Like if you introduce two flocks that didn't know each other's language, it seems like they should be able to pick them up pretty quick if they're adapting that quickly or splitting off that quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can imagine them starting to gesticulate more, to smile a lot more. (laughs) Smiling like Americans. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So as it turns out, Martinez completed her research just in time. In 2017, just after she had finished her recordings, tragedy actually struck the El Yunque forest as Hurricane Maria killed the entire flock of approximately 50 wild parrots. And... Yeah, she says that this was the last refuge of the wild parrot. If it hadn't been for the forest, the species would have gone extinct way long before that. Mm-hmm. So changes in vocalizations can impact parrot behavior, says Wright, who studies Costa Rica's yellow-naped Amazons, another parrot species. And when he experimentally transplanted several parrots into a population with an unfamiliar dialect, the younger birds quickly learned the new lingo, but the older birds failed to master it. He says that adults didn't seem to want to learn the new dialect. They just hung out with birds with the same dialect. That's that's the same uh, as which, humans, man. You get yeah, it. yeah. Hashtag relatable. Right? <laughs> so to help the captive birds pick up the wild vocalizations, the recovery program has actually turned to reintroducing parrots to serve as tutors. So there are Aww. birds scheduled for release into the El Yunque forest, and they first spend a period of time at a site where they can watch, listen to, and learn from their soon-to-be peers. 
conservationists have also stopped using Hispaniola and parrots as surrogates now that there's enough Puerto Rican parrots to raise their own chicks. Mm. And earlier this year, the team released 30 captive parrots into the El Yunque forest to replace the population that died during the hurricane. I mean, it sounds like there's not going to be any kind of like sharks versus the jets thing going on. It feels like they're all going to work it out. Yeah, they all want to work together, yeah. it seems, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're pro <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, well, I'm not going to attempt any kind of segue. This article's completely different, and that's okay. It doesn't have to live up to anybody's standards. Um, That's right. (laughs) uh, This one is from Messy Nessie Chic. It's called Hiding a 10,000-Year Clock Inside a Mountain. Whoa. Whoa. As the title implies, there is a clock that will run for 10,000 years. It measures things in years, centuries, and millennia, with room for 10,000 in the future. The century hand ticks forward every 100 years. It's It's literally just a giant clock. And uh, a cuckoo emerges once a millennia. So that's cute. <laughs> they, they, they are actually building this thing. The idea started in 1989 with Danny Hillis, who was a polymath computer theorist, engineer, designer. He and Stuart Brand, who was a trained biologist, launched a nonprofit foundation to build the first clock. But then it really got going when they got composer Brian Eno, of all people, on board. Yeah. One of the things he contributed was he created an algorithmic, never-repeating melody generator for the clock's chimes to play every day at noon. And he also suggested a name change for their foundation. They don't say what it was before, but now it is called the Long Now Foundation. And Mm -hmm. the philosophy of the foundation, as you would expect, is this sort of idea of let's think longer term than we have been. They say they are summoned to promote long-term thinking and combat what they've declared the prevailing faster-cheaper mindset that's drowning our planet in environmental degradation and socioeconomic strife. Mm. So Alexander Rose, one of the engineers who spent more than two decades working on this clock, says that short-term thinking leads to wasting resources. And we hope that by building such things, they challenge us not just technically, but ethically to become better ancestors. Hallelujah. Yeah, it kind of feels like there's not really a point to the clock other than as a work of art and a sort of thing to challenge people and make them think. But at the same time, they say it can run for 10,000 years. So if, you know, horrible things happen and we find ourselves waking up in the Bronze Age, at some point, someone can theoretically find this clock and know a whole lot about our previous society. And they worked really hard to build certain parts of it out of ceramic. They've really thought about the longevity aspect. It is stored deep inside a remote limestone mountain near Van Horn, Texas, which I went and looked it up. It's about two hours southeast of El Paso. It's just in the middle of desert. There's nothing out there. Rose notes that they chose this place on purpose because remote places generally have created much more opportunity for long-term survival. He said some Mm. of the most unique and meaningful objects from history have survived not by intention, but by being lost and then found at an opportune moment. Which is, again, that sort of short-term thinking they're talking about. You know, people raid tombs and whatever because it's like, oh, look, this immediate wealth I can have right now. Not Mm -hmm. at all thinking, well, what if someone 6,000 years in the future wants to learn about our society, right? Like, that just doesn't really enter our mindset most of the time. Right. And they made it hard to get to on purpose. The nearest airport is several hours away by car. Then you have to take a several-hour hike along a foot trail in the desert, ultimately rising about 2,000 feet above the valley floor. And that just gets you to the hidden entrance. So this, yeah, it gets kind of cool at this point. So uh, once you find the hidden entrance, it's a pair of stainless steel doors that act as an airlock, right? So you go through one, seal it behind you, then you go through the next one. Then you have to go through a 100-foot-long tunnel in basically pitch blackness. Then you come to a 500-foot-long vertical shaft where a spiral staircase has been carved directly into the rock. And Uh, uh, this uh. this shaft hanging downward is where the weights for the clock hang because this thing is massive. (gasps) 
So depending on the time of day you go visit, you might see them like right away at the bottom of the staircase, or you might have to go as much as 75 feet up to get to the top of the weight. And part of the climbing, interestingly, requires visitors to turn a turnstile, which winds the clock. And it's this, you know, massive gear. It takes two or three people pushing together to wind it. The computational portion of the clock is kept running on its own completely independently by the natural expansion and contraction of the rock with the seasons. Basically, you know, in the summertime, it gets hotter. In the wintertime, it gets colder. Day and night cycles are enough on this geologic scale to self-wind it enough to keep the computational part going. That's crazy. Yeah. But to save energy, it will only display that time on its face when a visitor manually gives it the extra power and basically asks the clock what time it is. So if you go visit it and no one has visited it in three months, it will still show a time of three months ago. And then when you sort of like crank the gear or whatever, it'll tell you, oh, this is what today is. Yeah. Wow. Wow. All that being said, the clock is not yet complete or open for visitors, which this article did not make readily apparent. Like, I I, <laughs> I got kind of sucked into the longnow.org website where they have just diagrams and videos. They have all sorts of cool stuff there. And they only very quietly at the very end are like, and we hope to finish it soon with your donation. No. And I'm like, oh, what? Like, I was already halfway planning a road trip. I was like, dude, we could go yeah. out there. Like, out in the middle of nowhere is the exact safe place to be right now. I want to take my kids and make them wind this clock. That sounds awesome. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> And, and to be fair, it is making progress, though. The project languished in the design stage for decades until 2016 when, unfortunately, I'm sorry to tell you, Angie, Jeff Bezos invested $42 million as well as donated the land for the project. I mean... Yeah, it's like, and it did generate some bad press at the time, basically along the lines of like, if Jeff Bezos cared about the long term, he'd start paying more in taxes or paying his employees better. But, but this is also something that is speaking to the future. Right. It's, it, you know, I'm always going to be for investing in the arts. I just wish we all had Bezos money to right. invest in the arts. And Bezos desert land out in Van Horn, Texas. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, like, I mean, wow. like you said, it pretty clearly wouldn't be happening without him. So it's great mm-hmm. if he's supporting this. And he is. Yeah. And you can sign up for updates about the opening when it eventually does happen. And they note that members of the foundation will get the first opportunities to go in when it's in. So you can buy your tickets now, I guess, and have a long term <laughs> view that in the future you'll get to visit this place. The way that you described how to actually get into this with all of the different like stages, it reminded me of like the intro sequence to Get Smart, where you've got all these <laughs> doors upon doors upon uh-huh. doors. And I've also been watching a lot of Legend of Korra. I'm rewatching it right now. <laughs> and that totally sounds, I mm-hmm. mean, if not an underground lair, then like an ancient spiritual temple that mm-hmm. like requires, that's just amazing. Yeah. I would love to see this. Yeah. I mean, when you first started describing this clock, I was like, okay, that's cool. They engineered a grandfather clock that lasts a long time. Right. <laughs> but no, this is like a mountain clock. It's, an it's experience. not in the mountain. It is yeah, the it's mountain. Powered it's using by the, the mountain. mountain. Yeah, exactly. The mountain is actually keeping the time. I mean, that's so cool. Yeah. I have to say, though, the one fear that I had was like, okay, society collapses. We go back to the Bronze Age. A couple thousand years, people are finally starting to get back on their feet. They find this cave. They discover this amazing ancient artifact. They're playing with it. They're looking around. And basically, they do what we did with the Mayan calendar, where they're like, oh, look, 
this date stops at this particular time, they must have known the world was going to end. And like <laughs> they're going to look at this thing and be like, oh, they had secret knowledge. We didn't. We'd be like, no, we just 10,000 was a nice round number. That's just where we stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the organization does have some other projects that they are doing kind of more slightly more short term. They have a handheld Rosetta disk that contains over 13,000 pages of information on over 1,500 languages. So if you had this thing, even if you were a future society, you could presumably translate any artifact that you found from our time. Their San Francisco headquarters is open to the public. It includes a small working model of the 10,000-year clock as it will be when it eventually does get put into action, I suppose. And they also have a bar that serves a variety of extremely aged whiskeys. So they're really, they're all about time, really. That's, that's their, yeah, uh, their nice. philosophy. And, you know, you could go hear an original composition by Brian Eno that no one else will literally ever hear again if you get there right at noon. Nice. So. That is kind of worth it right then and there. For sure. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We hope you've had fun with us. There are, of course, many articles we did not get to today. Some of those include an arsonist destroyed a wonder of the world for modern reasons. A strange new magnetoelectric effect has been discovered in a symmetrical crystal and parental advisory, the story of a warning label. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you would like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.